Thousands of federal employees are a step closer to a somewhat bigger pay raise in 2024. That's after the Office of Personnel Management outlined plans to establish four new locality pay areas in the coming months. OPM's proposed rule also included plenty of other pay recommendations from the Federal Salary Council. Here to break it all down, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And some of these locality pay areas are a little bit of a head-scratcher. Tell us where they are. Tom, the four new locality pay areas that we will see if, if this proposal is approved are Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. And each of those includes a couple other counties as well within them to kind of put that all together. All of those four areas that would be the new locality pay areas are currently part of the rest of U.S. locality pay area. And if once these changes are implemented, it would impact about 16,000 federal employees across all of those four regions combined. OPM is planning to implement the changes in time for those federal employees to see the changes reflected in their first paychecks of 2024. All right. And just for clarification for those that might be new to this, this is where the federal office is or where their residences are? It's based on where the federal office is. Right. So if you live in high rent area but work in some schlubby place, you're not getting the locality pay. Right. And we're not, you know, I'm not sure exactly how often it happens that you have that difference, but it is technically based on the office location. Yeah, I just thought we would establish that since we talk about this every year. And fundamentally, the government has it so that people that are in working in high cost areas are compensated for conditions beyond their control. That's the basis for this, correct? Right. And contrary to popular belief, it's actually not based on cost of living, but locality pay is actually calculated based on the wages that private sector employees in a given region make. So if you have similar types of positions between federal sector and private sector, the locality pay adjustments are basically meant to bring federal employees' wages up to to be more similar to those in the private sector. Right. So it's a derivative of the cost of living because the presumption is that higher pay for private sector has something to do with where it is. You're going to make more as a barista in Manhattan than you are maybe in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I don't know. I haven't looked at Starbucks pay lately. (laughs) But the process for creating these OPM proposes, but they don't dispose, correct? Right. There is a long process to kind of develop new locality pay areas. The OPM proposed rules are a later step in that process. So initially where this started was with the Federal Salary Council, which is a council that's composed of labor relations and uh, federal pay experts, and they basically issue an annual report with their recommendations for, you know, what they think should be a locality pay area, if there should be any new ones, if there should be any counties added to existing ones, any other changes related to federal pay for the general schedule. Those recommendations from that annual report then get sent to a panel, which is called the President's Pay Agent. That's a three-person panel with the Office of Management and Budget Director, the Director of the Office of Personnel Management, and the Labor Department Secretary. And those three people then issue another report where they either approve or deny the recommendations from the Federal Salary Council. Then that's where we see OPM come in. The president's pay agent approved recommendations go to OPM. They determine how to then implement those changes. Right. So there is a little bit of a circular thing going on here because OPM proposes, then OPM votes, at least one third of the vote. And given this administration and Labor Department, I think we know how this one's going to go. 
the other thing we want to ask, too, is of the proposed pay raise that comes each year from the pay agent or what the president implements, because Congress never seems to quite exactly vote on it. Sometimes they do. A portion of that pay only is the locality pay. It's not the big part of the raise, is it? That's right. And, you know, it's not exactly set in statute for what the base pay versus locality pay should be. But typically what we see is the locality pay is 0.5%, so half a percent of the overall uh, average federal pay raise. So, for example, in 2023, federal employees got a, an average 4.6% federal pay raise. That was a 4.1% base pay raise that every federal employee got across the country, no matter what. And the 0.5% locality pay part is actually an average, so federal employees might see slightly above the total 4.6% depending on where they live. Right. So if you live in a non-locality pay area, you just get the 4.5%. You don't get the 0.5%. And of the 0.5%, that varies how much you get of that depending on the flavor of your locality. Right. So there are some pay locality areas that are a lot higher. So for example, the D.C. area is going to be one that's where you see a lot higher salaries and therefore a higher locality pay area some more rural areas across the country where federal employees are working, you're going to see that percentage be a little bit lower. Interesting. All right. And we mentioned at the top there are some other recommendations that OPM included in the rule for the locality pay. What else can feds expect to see in the coming year or hope for, let's say? Maybe they can't expect it just yet. They can hope for it. Nothing is quite set in stone yet, Tom. So this is all we'll just see kind of how everything plays out. But on top of the four new locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement, they're also planning to expand already existing locality pay areas. And there are three that are on the docket for that. So we have the Dukes and Nantucket counties that will be added to the Boston locality in Massachusetts. You have Huron County, Michigan being added to the Detroit pay locality, and then the Pacific and San Juan counties in Washington being added to the Seattle locality. So all of those they're basically going to see their pay, the employees working in those specific counties, go up potentially a little bit next year as well. And then there's also a broader change to the way that we're kind of mapping out locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement. Basically, the Office of Management and Budget recently updated its definitions of what are called metropolitan statistical areas and combined statistical areas which can alter the way the map is laid out for locality pay areas. It's a little bit complicated, but what federal employees should know about this is that it means there could be dozens of different jurisdictions or regions across the country that may be rearranged to different locality pay areas in the near future. But OPM importantly noted that no one would be moved to a lower paying area as a result of this. Yeah, it's definitely a one-way train. And, you know, at first glance, you look at a place like Nantucket and you think, why would that be locality pay? Who is there? But when you think about it, there could be several federal employees on a place like Nantucket. You could have the National Park Service. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing probably maybe Coast Guard. There could be a few people there from the Coast Guard, civilians. Also, you know, the uh, Social Security Administration has offices in obscure but high pay. I don't not saying Nantucket's obscure. It's obscure to me. I'm a Martha's Vineyard guy. But, you know, the idea that feds are pretty much everywhere. 
and some of these places are quite expensive. I mean, Nantucket, you and I couldn't swing a house there, I don't think, from what I've seen when I'm looking on Zillow. Where... <laughs> right. And I think the important takeaway, I, I can't say for sure either who exactly is working in each of these areas or how many exact people are in each of the counties. But I do know that just under 17,000 federal employees as a result of those changes are going to actually be getting their locality pay changed. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more. 
and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger. 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.